Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, it is Wednesday night, and that means it's time for Friends and Fiction. It's the happiest night of the week, and we are so glad you're here. I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm Christy Woodson Harvey. I'm Patty Callahan. And this is your Wednesday night spot, Friends and Fiction. <laughs> Four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, and libraries. You may notice that we're a man down tonight. We have shared with you before that Mary Kay's daughter is sick and awaiting a liver transplant. Um, Mary Kay's time is not her own at the moment. And right now she's with Katie. So please join us in sending Mary Kay, Katie and their family, all our love and prayers as they navigate this difficult territory. Yeah. We miss you, Mary Kay. Love to you, Katie. But we're glad, glad the rest of you are here because tonight we'll be talking with two fabulous authors, yeah. Alifair Burke, the author of Find Me, and Allison Pataki, the author of The Magnificent Lives of Marjorie Post. Fun fact that both of these authors have fathers who've been in the public eye, and it'll be interesting to talk to both of them about the influences around their development as writers and as readers. Yeah, that will be interesting. I'm excited to hear yeah. from them. And as you know, we continue to encourage you to support independent booksellers when and where you can. And one way to do that is to visit our own Friends and Fiction bookshop.org page where you can find Alifair and Allison's books and books by the four of us and our past guests at a discount. Of course, the bookshop.org, a portion of each sale through the Friends and Fiction shop goes to support independent bookstores, and it also helps to support this show. So if you enjoy watching, this is a great way to support our guests, independent bookstores, and the Friends and Fiction group all at the same time. Don't forget that our spring box is now available for order from our friends at Oxford Exchange, which is also a great independent bookstore. Order now and receive Christie's of the Wedding Veil in March, Mary Kay's of the Homewreckers in May, and a special Friends in Fiction notebook complete with sticky flags for marking all your favorite pages. And we're sure there are going to be a lot of favorite pages. I'm telling you, I know I can get those books, but I'm buying that box so I, I can know. have that notebook. <laughs> <laughs> I like all, I want to at the end, you know, years and years and years and years later, I want to say I have every little Chotsky. All the swag. Yeah. You know, yes. No, it's what like the bug, the stickies. All right. We have entered the second month of our very first Friends and Fiction Reading Challenge. Each month of the year, there will be a different reading prompt. And we challenge you to not only complete all 12 months, but also to keep track of what you've read so we can all talk about it on the Facebook page. One way to do that is with our beautiful reading journal designed by us, along with the independent bookstore Oxford Exchange. It has this 
gorgeous friends in fiction, blue linen cover, and plenty of space to record your thoughts on what you're reading. Oh, Kristen has hers. Very handy. Our friend Anissa Armstrong will be sharing prompts and photos all month. So if you look under announcements, you can chime in with what you chose. February, which is February. It's February. I I don't know how that happens. It's February. So the February challenge is memoir or nonfiction. Yeah. And, you know, we're excited that tonight we're going to be talking um, a little bit with Allison about her memoir, which would be a perfect choice to read this month. But let's begin by welcoming our first guest for the evening, Alifair Burke. So Alifair is the Edgar Award nominated author of 20 crime novels, including two powerhouse series featuring NYPD detective Ellie Hatcher and Portland Deputy District Attorney Samantha Kincaid. Tonight, we'll talk about her latest novel, Find Me. Published in more than 20 languages, Alifair's books have been featured on best book lists from outlets, including the Today Show, Entertainment Weekly, People, O, the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, and numerous other outlets. Awesome. Alifair received her Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from Reed College. She lives in New York and is a professor of law at Hofstra University of Law. Sean, do you think you could bring Alifair on, please? Hi, Hi Thank you guys for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. It's awesome to see you. It is. We're we're so happy to see you and we're so excited to talk about Find Me. I love a good twisty plot. And boy, does this one deliver. In fact, our friend Chris Bojalian, who has been on our show before, calls it a smart, suspenseful slow burn, saying that the tension is palpable on every page. Could you give our viewers the elevator pitch? Ah! This is my new book, Find Me. (laughs) Yes, Chris Bojalian is the best. Um, We agree with him. His caliber, um, sing my praises, feels pretty cool. Um, so, um, find the me and find me is uh, Hope Miller, um, who wants a fresh start after spending the last fifteen years in a small town in New Jersey, and she moves out to East Hampton um, to kind of become more independent um, and start her life over again. And she suddenly goes missing. And when she goes missing, her best friend, Lindsay, um, feels like something terrible has happened and goes looking for her. Um, The thing that makes the search for Hope a little unusual is part of why Hope wanted to get a fresh start away from the small town where she's been living is she turned up in that small town 15 years ago um, as a stranger with no recollection of who she was or how she got to New Jersey. And the only thing she knew about herself was she was thrown from... Um, an overturned SUV in a terrible car accident. And she recovered from her uh, physical injuries. She survived the crash, um, but she never really figured out who she was. And at some point just started to move forward with her life. Um, And I think the book raises questions of how can you move forward with your life if you don't really know your past, right? These issues of identity. Um, But it also kind of complicates Lindsay's search for her um, in the present because you know, there are some people who think, hmm, maybe 15 years ago, everything wasn't quite right. <laughs> um, and maybe there's a reason why she's now moved on. Maybe something's happened, you know, so it's kind of hard to look for her or to find her without also digging into her past. So the title Find Me kind of works both ways that she's missing in the present, but it's also a search into who she was to begin with. Mm. I love that overlapping. Yep. 
too. Overlapping missing. Like there's, there's, she's missing in more than one way. (laughs) Right. Um, Okay. So we know from your bio that as a lawyer, you worked for, uh, as a prosecutor, right? Yes, I did. Okay. And as a liaison with the Portland Police Department, but I've read that your interest in crime dates back to your childhood fascination with a serial killer. And of course, there's an old serial murder aspect to this novel. Was that the original spark for the story? Can you kind of talk to us about that? Um, well, in terms of my uh, my interest in crime, who knows why we, you know, those know. of us whose thoughts live in the darkness, like why exactly are we like that? I have no idea, but I suspect it has something to do with when I was really little. My parents moved from Southern Florida, where I was born, um, to Wichita, Kansas, and I wasn't having it. Like <laughs> I found out that there was no beach, and Andy Gibb <laughs> lived in Key West, which was near where we lived, and he did not live anywhere near Wichita, Kansas. So these were two <laughs> reasons. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to have a beach, and I won't be able to marry Andy Gibb. So I'm just going to stay here. Like the neighbors, like like me, they'll probably let me stay. Like I really was just like, I'm not going. Um, and my parents kind of were like, Oh, you know, Wichita will be safer, and you'll go to a nicer school, and we'll have a better neighborhood, and we'll, you'll have your own room. Like they kind of like sold it to me as like you're going to have much more of a picket fence. Uh, lifestyle than we had in sort of chaotic Southern Florida at the time. And so I kind of went against my will. Um, and, and I swear we had just been there for like a few weeks when the local news announces that there's a serial killer killing women and children who calls himself BTK, which stood for oh bind that guy yeah, who, who stood for bind, torture and kill. And even as a fourth grader, I looked at my parents. And I'm like, good job. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> Wise choice, mom and dad. Really, so glad we aren't in dangerous Florida. Thanks, thanks, thanks a whole lot for moving to this really safe place. Oh, <laughs> but goodness. to be more serious about it, though, the, the facts of it, of it. I don't know how familiar are people with that that case, but it's pretty gruesome stuff. Like just even his moniker kind of tells the story of what he was into. Um, but growing up there. Everybody who grew up in Wichita, Kansas, like in the 70s um, and early 80s, you would immediately check the phone cord when you got home, back when we all had landlines, because they thought he, because he cut the phone line, so you couldn't call for help. And we all have basement, like bolts on our basement doors, because they thought he got in through the basement, like, and like, that's in your eight-year-old head. Um, and, And it was a... It was around that time that, you know, my mom was a school librarian and on the weekends, we we used to go to the public library every Saturday for like my little stack of books. And I started asking her for little mystery stories like Encyclopedia Brown and Nancy Drew and um, just insatiable desire for like more crime stories, more mysteries. And, And I'm looking back on it, I always kind of wonder if it was that idea of like, in these kinds of books, you know, there's, it, it can feel really chaotic and dangerous and upside down in the middle, but the reader kind of knows like, yeah. you know, like with a roller coaster, you're terrorized in the middle of it, but you do kind of know at the end, you know, it's not the middle of the ride you love. It's when you coast into the end, right? And it's like, yeah. <sighs> then you get the endorphins. Like, I think it's the, I think writing a good crime novel and a good twisty mystery is it's it's when the pieces kind of come together and you have that resolution yes. that's so satisfying. So I kind of wonder if as a kid, that's 
that's why I got really into reading these little mysteries. Um, but I also got fascinated in true crime too. So it's probably why I, I became a, you know, when I went to law school, I didn't know exactly what kind of law I wanted to practice. It's probably not a big surprise. I went into criminal law. Yeah. So. Well, I always think it's fascinating that if we look back, we were talking about this recently, the things we were fascinated with as children. Yes. Yeah. If we really pay attention, they yeah. reemerge to do the things we do, whether it's reading, writing, yeah. a fascination with crime, a fascination with story. And I think yeah, that, right. that those of us yeah. who love doing what we do, if we look back, we'll see these little hints in our childhood. So, And in my case, I still listen to Annie Gibbs. So. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> that's great. I stand, so I have I stand by my choices. I have the, <laughs> he's, he's the best. I have the opposite experience. I was forced to move to South Florida okay. when I was that age. So that's funny. And I tried to refuse to, I tried to move in with the neighbors, but yeah, <laughs> it turns out that the neighbors who tell you that they just love you and like they're, you know, I love you just like you're my own. That's a big, it's not true. They will not keep you. They will not keep you. And those pesky parents just wanted you to come. Yeah, oh yeah. Gosh. It's like, could you just love me a little less? Like, people abandon their children all the time. Like, <laughs> Andy Gibba helped me up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, um, Find Me explores the nature of female friendships and the links that women will go to protect those relationships so well. And the relationship you touched on earlier between Lindsay and Hope, her best friend with amnesia, is particularly compelling. And I also wanted to note that Publishers Weekly said in the starred review that your appealing characters match the meticulous plotting, which I think also speaks Sweet. to the strong dynamics between these women. So can you talk a bit about these characters and their friendship? Yeah. I mean, to me, the heart of the book really is the friendship between um, Hope and Lindsay, and it provides the heart of the story. Um, and I, I think although, so their friendship is forged in highly unusual circumstances. I mentioned that Hope was found um, yeah. thrown from this overturned SUV. It's uh, Lindsay is the one who finds her. Uh, oh, Lindsay wow. is the police chief's daughter and she's on her way back from having just graduated from college. And she sees this car accident at the side of the road and stops in the pouring rain and sees this poor girl sprawled out on the side of the road and assumes she's dead. Um, but like manages to I actually had to do medical research. I hate research, but I had to do <laughs> medical research to figure out how you, in any of it, she manages to save her life. Um, and uh, hope kind of comes to just enough to kind of reach for her hand as she's getting moved into the ambulance and kind of on impulse, Lindsay jumps into the ambulance with her and kind of just becomes her person. You know, when she's like, is she going to live? And then when she lives and she doesn't know who she is, she's the one who's like, I'll stay here until we find your family. And then when that doesn't happen, they're kind of, she's her person all of a sudden. Right. And so it's, it's a very unusual um, origin story to their friendship. But I think a lot of women will find it a very universal story that I think many of us have, like, you know, these female friendships that are qualitatively different than our friend yeah. than our family relationships or our intimate relationships that um where it's almost like outsiders to the group might kind of be like what is it with you two or what is it with you and your girls or and 
And so I think a lot of those of us who are lucky enough to have that kind of a, you know, sort of ride or die um, uh, female friendship situation will will empathize with these characters that the idea of people want Lindsay to just move on. And she's like, I'm not going to move on when, you know, this woman I care about is still missing. So it's, it almost becomes an obsession for her. Mm. Um, Yeah, no, I can definitely see that. And, and you can see like the, you know, how her family and friends would be like, what are you doing? You don't even really know this person, but when you have those connections, like they do, and sometimes you do find that and it is really special. I'm laughing too, because you said you hate, you hated doing the medical research. I'm doing legal research for my next. Oh. Book, so. <laughs> <laughs> when I knew you were coming on. I was like, hmm. <laughs> I shouldn't tell too many people, but I do kind of, uh, I'm, I'm a handy source for people at times. I'm like, I can save you some time. <laughs> oh, you just <laughs> said that on live. Yeah. 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 Like, <laughs> what did I just do? Can you, I don't know what you just did. <laughs> can we erase that now? <laughs> oh, except, it's already out there. I, she, uh, she's now changed. She's had to change. <laughs> You're going to have to change your number. Exactly. Your number, your email address, everything. Yeah. Take down your Twitter yeah. right now, Al. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, without giving too much away, I have to yeah. ask about the twist at the end. Obviously, don't tell us what it was, but was that planned or was that something that just happened? Um, uh, kind of can't answer that question. Okay. Um, okay. I, I can give a more general answer, which is I think the most organic like those big aha twists sometimes like they feel most organic when it was kind of inevitable. Like if, if you really know the characters well and you've been paying attention, it was kind of there all along. And that doesn't mean, and sometimes the, like some of my better twists, I've known them all along, but some of my better twists have also just been like at my halfway point, I'll be like, I see it now. Like I now know these people well enough to know where they're going to take me. And because I kind of think of the process of writing a book and I mean, you all know, tell me if you agree. I, I kind of, I know the characters well enough and I know the story well enough that I feel comfortable starting like, okay, I'm going to live with this project long enough that I know it will work um, without necessarily knowing what it will necessarily look like when I'm done. Um, and I kind of look at it as a process of getting to know the characters better and I, 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 to me, it's knowing them that kind of leads me to the plot, if that makes sense. It's not the, for me, it's not the other way around. I don't know the plot first and then I throw characters into it. It's more, I get to know the characters and then the plot kind of gets more layered from there. And then at some point, do you do some outlining? Like once you, once the plot begins to come together, cause your stories are so intricate. Like there's, you know, there's just so many threads that weave together. I'm just curious how yeah. that happens. Um, yeah, I have a, I have a big whiteboard that looks like a serial killer lives there, (laughs) I guess, or someone hunting a serial killer, I should say, right? Like when you see those, uh, huge law enforcement whiteboards, four kinds of of ink, you know, I've kind of got one person's storyline and green and one person's storyline of red. It's kind of a stupid way to do it. But, um, and then I do a, a, what I normally do is the first draft, I think, who was just about to finish their first draft? Is that you, Kristen? Oh, I kind of think of it. Oh, Christy. All of us. Yeah. I think of that as like, 
it's almost like what's the equivalent of it? It's like you've moved all the moving boxes into the house, but like you yeah, have no, to I still kind of yeah. like hang the pictures up and figure what goes where. Like I, Ooh. I take a very open-minded approach about what stays in, what comes out, what's gets built up, what gets moved. Like I basically just do a complete rewrite, yeah. um, which is probably an insane way to do it, but it. It really doesn't take yeah. a lot unless you really messed it up. Like you're not erasing that much, like, but you might yeah. like rearrange things. Like I'll often tell, you know, a chapter from someone else's point of view than yeah. the way I put it in the first draft, you know? So I just kind of, as I self edit um, that first draft um, and, and then, then it's usually pretty done. Then it's kind of a cleanup from there. Yeah. But, that's interesting. I love hearing the different ways people, yeah. some well, people can't write without this huge skeleton. Some people yeah. just, yeah, I have I, it would be nice to do that, but um, I, can't. I always kind of have to find it as I go. <laughs> yeah. But you know, th there's no wrong way to do it. We talk about that a lot on here. I mean, yes. all of us have a very different process. Um, and I think it's whatever gets the story on the page, pulls the characters from your head and sets them in motion in a way that makes for a moving, engaging story, you know, however that has to happen for you. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm at that rearranging um, the stuff I've taken out of the moving boxes place in the, in the writing yeah. process right now. It's a mess. That house right. is a mess. I'll just say that. <laughs> so, Alifair, we mentioned to you, um, you know, that Mary Kay wasn't able to make it tonight. But yeah, one of the things that, that she left us to ask you, um, I just had to say it because this is so in her voice. She said, you've got major crime writing street cred, <laughs> which I uh -oh. think is such a Mary Kay <laughs> thing to say. From her, um, I, I, I know she was really disappointed not to get to talk to yeah, you. But, um, I love her. Um, it, so along those lines, of course, you're the daughter of multi-award winning and New York Times bestselling mystery writer James Lee Burke. And you've also co-written books with the late Mary Higgins Clark. Um, can you tell us, first of all, how that partnership came about and what it meant to you in your your journey and your development as a writer? Yeah, I've been pretty lucky to have some yeah. pretty wonderful and talented elders um, in my <laughs> professional life uh, and personal life. So um you know, several years ago, Mary Higgins Clark, I just have to pinch myself. I'm like, oh, yeah, I wrote six novels with the Queen of Suspense. That's um, amazing. Yeah. As, as, as I was talking about, like, loving crime novels as a young person, and hers were, you know, some of my original, you know, the original uh, stuff I got addicted to. Wow. So, um, but she wrote a book called um, I've Got You Under My Skin, and one of the characters was a um, a producer of a television true crime show. And I think she and her editor saw the potential for a series spinoff from that book. Um, but, you know, if she wrote a series, then that's pretty much all you write, right? And she had yeah. lots of other books she wanted to write. So the idea was to pair her with a collaborator of somebody who had already kind of successfully done a, a series that could co-author it with her. So this is where... The char this character's point of view doesn't know what happens next. <laughs> so all I know is at some point I got a phone call about whether or not I would be interested in talking to her about potentially um, doing a series together. And that's a very easy uh, lunch invitation <laughs> to request. <laughs> <Right. laughs> like, Let, Let me think about that for a minute. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, yes. <laughs> but, so, you know, we had a, a very nice lunch um, and mostly just talked about how we write, like what, we do in what order and I think the thing that what what made it feel for both of us like it would work 
um, is that we do character first. Like we explore everything about the characters oh. and kind of Ooh, find okay. the plot through that. Um, and so we decided, to, well, let's try to just write a couple of chapters together and see how that works. And then we decided to write one book together and that became, you know, the second and the third book and then the fourth and the fifth. So um, I love that series. I don't know if people have uh, read it, but it's called the Under Suspicion series and it kind of flushes out that world of this television show that uh, investigates cold cases. And I love, it's like one of those, I love series that have the side characters or people you kind of come to love too. Like yeah. I love that whole, yeah. the full cast, a big ensemble cast um, of characters, both in her personal life and her professional life. Um, and I, I'm sure as people know, um, Mary passed away uh, late January of 2020. Um, and we were almost done uh, with our sixth book in that series. So, mm -hmm you know, after an appropriate amount of time, we decided to finish it. So finishing it without her was kind of bittersweet, but an honor. Um, that book's called Peace of My Heart. So, oh, nice. um, but that was a great experience to work with her and to get to know her family. And it's just a wonderful writer, but also just a wonderful person. And I also think, I think people don't realize that, she, I mean, she built a huge franchise, yeah. um, you know, yeah. starting out, she was a single mother. She was a widow a very young widow um, with five kids and she would wake up um, before they went to school. Um, she would write and then, wow. you know, get them their breakfast and take them to school. And she did that all on her own. She went back to college because wow. th she wanted her children to realize that education was important. Um, wow. It's just stellar and every, like, just, just a model human being. And I think that she really paved the way for women. I mean, I that she, you know, was the boss of her own career. She, no one knew that her readers as well as she does. Like she knows what her readers want, knows how to deliver it. Just such a professional. Um, and the stories that she wrote, now I'm just like going off. You know, um, I'm actually working right now. The book I'm working on right now is actually a sequel to um, Where Are the Children, which she and I had oh. um, discussed before she passed. So I'm working on that now. And I don't think people realize if you go back and reread that book, it's 45 years ago. And that book has all of the pieces of modern psychological suspense of, you know, a potentially unreliable narrator being yeah. gaslit, you know, a bad husband, like, oh faulty gosh. memories, um, you know, danger to children. Like, I mean, really a pretty dark book. And, you know, you can see um, all of the DNA in that book of, I think, modern um, psychological suspense. Wow, she was really ahead of her time. Trailblazer, total trailblazer. Trail, yeah. Just, yeah. Just yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Very missed. Um, yeah. Well, I'm so interested. I think we're all so interested, and I'm sure our audience is too. Um, what was it like sort of, you know, growing up in this household with a writer like how did that influence you and then do you think that it helped develop you into the writer that you are today yeah I think so it's not like I'd come home and my dad's giving me writing lessons or anything <laughs> sure, like that yeah. but, I, you know I think whatever you see your parents doing seems normal to you right so like <laughs> if dad's doing smack on the couch you think that's a normal thing to do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sean, can you pull that course. clip for later? Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we model our parents. Um, and thank goodness he was not doing that. But what he did do that just seemed normal is he would go to his room. Um, and they, you know, we didn't have a lot of 
space or things back in the day. And, um, you know, he, he had a desk that he made out of a door. I still remember it was like a door from the hardware store, a piece of wood, like on cinder blocks was his desk um, in up in their room. And he would go up there for hours on, you know, a Royal manual typewriter. I could still hear the sound of that typewriter. Oh, I love that. Um, oh, wow. And, and right. And that just seemed like a normal thing to do. And I didn't realize this. If somebody had asked me as a kid what my dad did for a living, I said he was a writer. I didn't realize it till years later. He was out of print. He wasn't published. Like he published oh. three. He published three really early novels. Like when I was super, like a little kid. Um, and then he got dropped by his agent. It was publisher first. Then William Morris dumped him. And then um, he Whoa. just he found a different agent. Um, Philip Spitzer. Uh, and Philip, I think it took him 12 years to get published again. Oh wow. And but he just kept doing the work and kept sending it out. So I didn't know I was, you know, I was a dumb kid worried about serial killers and had to give, right? So I didn't actually know that he was unpublished. Um, or not currently. What a story published. of perseverance. So, yeah. so I think that that's I think that for me the biggest thing isn't it's not like I inherited the prose or, you know, the actual craft of writing. I I sure. do think, though, that it just seemed like a normal thing to do. Because lots of people have an idea for something, but they don't act on it, right? Like, yes. um, it's like I have an idea that maybe I'm going to become a triathlete, but I don't actually go and <laughs> do it. Where it, it seemed normal in my house that if you had an idea for something that you would put it down on paper. And then my mother was a librarian. And so to when I, I mentioned that she would take me to the library every Saturday, that was to get my dad writing time, right? It was to, so the oh, house wow. would be quiet. So she really was the one, she kind of was creating two writers at once, right? She was making it possible for him to keep that. pursuing what might've felt like a pipe dream yeah. at the time. Um, and then, you know, meanwhile, it turned me into a, a reader and you can't be a writer if you're not a reader, yeah, of course. So, um, yeah. A house full of books. Yeah. I, I love that. But also that you grew up with the idea that it, it, you don't just snap your fingers and the book appears on the page. You have to put in the work and you keep trying and trying and making yourself better. Like I, I think that's the best lesson that a writer can learn. And that's what gives you that career longevity, right? Like, yeah. I and to know that sleeper um, went 12 years without an editor yeah. or, yeah. or an agent. Yeah. Below, I mean, yeah, I was in high. I, I was in high school when he got. Um, I think an academic press, Louisiana State University LSU Press, um, published a collection of his short stories, and then they published um, like a small novel, and then he wrote a crime novel. Um, then he wrote the Neon Rain, and then he got that's uh, who originally published it. I can't even remember who originally published it. Um, Maybe a little brown, I'm not sure. But in any event, then he got a book contract, but it still didn't pay very much. And then yeah. I think it was his third book in that series um, got nominated for an Edgar. Maybe he won the Edgar, and then he got oh, you know a big a bigger contract. I lost my fan financial aid. That was fun. <laughs> you're like well, finally you get the contract he finally right? started right. making money he finally started making money after i was in college i'm like oh no <laughs> terrible timing thanks dad first you yeah. give and now that yes like, first you took Andy for me yeah oh, you have cheated my life <laughs> <laughs> that makes it 
Look, I stand by my decision. <laughs> <laughs> Allison, I, I don't know what better yeah. note we could send you out on than that. So on and on. No. Oh my god. Okay, so my new book is find me. Even though I talked mostly about Mary and Andy and 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 BCK, but this is a really good read. I will say the big I love hearing from readers and um the thing I keep hearing more about this book than maybe any other book I've written before is how many people are saying that they read it in one that's awesome. one sitting. Oh, like, so it, it's that's a, a it's a quick read. Well, great. Well, thank Alifair. you guys so much for having me. Absolutely. Thanks, but we before we it. let you go, Alafair, where can we find you? Where on you know your website, your social, all that? Uh, where where can our uh, alafairburke.com is my website, and then I'm on all of the social. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Alifair, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank it was so you. nice to get to know you. Thank you so thank much. You. All right. Bye, Enjoy the rest of the night. You. You. Thanks. Thank you. All right, everybody, stay with us because we have another guest coming up, as we said at the beginning of the show. So our second guest, Allison Pataki, is the New York Times bestselling author of several novels for adults and children, as well as an acclaimed memoir, Beauty in the Broken Places, about the devastating effects of her young husband's unexpected stroke. I know it's an incredible story. While she was pregnant with their first child. So we'll ask her a little bit about that. But tonight, we are going to be focusing on her latest, The Magnificent Lives of Marjorie Post. A former news writer and producer, Allison has written for The New York Times, The Huffington Post, USA Today, and more. Allison graduated from Yale University with a major in English. and She lives in New York with her family. Her novels have been translated into a meager 20 languages. <laughs> she has appeared on the Today Show, Good Morning America, Fox and Friends, Good Day New York, Good Day Chicago, and Morning Joe. And tonight we snagged her for Friends and Fiction. Sean, can you bring Allison on to join us? Hello, Allison. Thank you so much for Hi. being with us. Thank you for having me. I love I love listening to that uh, the 30 minutes is too. And now it's a treat to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're so glad. Yeah, Alifair was so interesting to hear from, but we know you're going to be so interesting too. It's just a night of oh, what a lucky I'm night. Excited, yeah. I know. <laughs> Can I just so, say one thing that's a tangent that's completely probably unrelated, but it's it's was I was thinking about it the whole time I was listening to Alifair. Yeah, I have a Mary sure. Higgins Clark, I have a Mary Higgins Clark story. And we love Mary Higgins Clark, right? So when I was in news and I was a total misfit in the industry and I was miserable because I just really wanted to be writing books and I, I wanted to write stories that I had, you know, more than two minutes to get into and then yes. get out. And so, but I felt, cause I was, I was in my young twenties at the time and I didn't really know anything about writing books. I, I was not published and I really didn't have much confidence. And I felt like it was sort of this dirty secret that I would go home at night after work <laughs> and I would write books or on the weekends, I would sneak out of my apartment and like not tell anyone where I was going and I would go write books. And, but of course the two people I told were my mother and father. And so we are at a dinner in New York city and it's a fundraiser. And to Alifair's point, Mary Higgins Clark was just the best person ever. So, of course, I think she was the honoree of the night because of her generosity. And all I wanted was I really wanted to just meet her. And my parents had met her over the years. I just wanted to be introduced. So, of course, I go over with my mom. And my mom being my mom, it's like, well, tell Mary Higgins Clark that you've written 
books and that you've got these manuscripts on your computer and you're going to be a writer someday. And I was mortified because like one, let the floor open up. I'm like, one did not tell Mary Higgins Clark that they are going to be a writer. And so I'm mortified. Mary Higgins Clark could not have been kinder. She took my hand. She looked me in the eye and she said, do it write the books. And she told me what Alifair just said, a little bit about her story. I was a single mom. I did it in the mornings. I made it work. You can make it work. She gave me her email address. And years later, when I published my first book, she read an advanced copy and offered me my first blurb. And it was like a formative experience in my life as a writer to just have mm. her confidence and her faith. And oh, I, yeah. I truly had Mary Higgins Clark with, and we stayed in touch over the years and she was so wonderful and always so supportive. And we always, I always shared mm. updates <laughs> with her, just my gratitude continued. Oh, anyways, I am also, you know, a big fan at the shrine of Mary Higgins Clark. And I just had to share wow. what a special one. I love that connective tissue. Oh my gosh. And and when you think about how many young writers she might have touched that way. Like you know, when when you think about it, if she had that generosity of spirit with you, and obviously she played a big role in Alifair's career, that's amazing. I'm so happy that you shared that. Thank you, Allison. What a great story. Wonderful. And then when I invited her to the launch party for my first book, saying, you know, thank you. She was in Florida. She wasn't around, but she goes. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm out of town. Mary loves a party. And she referred to herself as Mary. And I was Mary just like, you loves are the just party. the best person ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I love that. Well, gosh, I, I wish we could just talk about Mary Higgins Clark all day because right. I feel like there's yeah. so much more, more to know about her. But Allison, <laughs> we would love for you also to tell us about the magnificent lives of Marjorie Post. Can you kind of give us an overview of the book, which I think is coming out in about, Thank you. In about two weeks? Right. Yeah. Coming up just in just almost exactly two weeks. Yeah. Thank you. So yeah. it is historical fiction. I will just hold it up. This is, so um, two weeks. And so this is my ninth book, but it's my sixth work of historical fiction. And six years ago, a friend of a friend who was a curator and an oral historian at Marjorie Merriweather Post's final home, where much of her personal treasure is still kept to this day as a museum. She she knew I loved writing historical fiction and that I'd written several books about these fabulous women from history. And she just, she pulled me aside and she said, what do you know about Marjorie Merriweather Post? And I will be honest, at the time I was embarrassed to admit it, I did not know much about Marjorie Merriweather Post. The name sounded vaguely familiar, Post serials, but I thought maybe it was the Emily Post Manners book, or maybe it was the Post newspaper. Anyway, this woman, this this wonderful late friend, said, "Just look into the life of Marjorie Merriweather Post. That is a woman whose story would make for fabulous fiction." And so I just began to do my research, and I followed, the, you know, the breadcrumbs of her tips, and I went to the home Hillwood, and I, you. I don't know if you all feel this way, but sometimes when you're looking into the history and you're digging deep enough into the historical record, you just come across this stuff where it's just too good to be true. You could not make it up if you were even just writing straight up fiction. And that was how I felt as I as I uncovered the you know juicy morsels of this woman's life. But Marjorie Merriweather Post, 
was a trailblazer. She was an icon. She was a woman living ahead of her time. Um, she built Mar-a-Lago. She was, a, you know, a boss lady in business. She changed the American way of life forever. Um, she was the first ambassadress to the Soviet Union during the Cold War, hanging out with Molotov and all these Russian, you know, unbelievable <laughs> figures we've heard about. But I will just say, I, I compare her to kind of like a Forrest Gump of the 20th century because wow. she had such an and front row seat to all of these historical moments, but with way better clothes and way better home. And <laughs> even if you might not necessarily know a ton about her just from hearing the name Marjorie Merriweather Post, if you ever had a cup of orange juice or if you've ever had breakfast uh, that contains cereal in it, or if you've ever, if you own a refrigerator in your home, or if you've ever had a frozen vegetable, uh, Marjorie Merriweather Post has directly impacted your life even if you might not necessarily know the roles she's played. Fascinating. Fabulous. Oh, wow. Fascinating. And And writing about, sorry, finished. What were you saying? Oh, I was going to say, and like Mary Higgins Clark, she had this largesse, you know, this largesse (laughs) spirit and this magnanimous, just her legacy is stunning when you, when you look at what she did with her talent and her time and her gifts. Um, And it's still today. Well, I mean, even like your title suggests, mm-hmm. it feels like she had more than one life. Like she just Absolutely. kept, like you, when you start to list everything you did, you're like, that, that's a bunch of sisters, surely. Like, right. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. I, I talked about this with my editor pretty early on. Cause I was saying, you know, I know you don't want this, but I could write, I can give you a thousand pages. I could write probably <laughs> five different versions of this book each one with its own individual whole arc and they would all be true and it would still be only scratching the surface. Uh, Even just her personal life, she had these four really dramatic, really different love stories and marriages. And that was really unique for her time period because she lived over the course of the 20th century um, in the early 20th century. But it was, I will say that made it probably the most challenging book I've ever written because there was so much ground to cover. It was also yeah. good. And it, it was really, really challenging. And I don't know that I've ever written about a woman that I was just so in awe of, of all she enamored with her life. And so I really wanted to honor her story, but there's a lot there. Well, I've written about real people mm-hmm. also, and there's this, um, kind of weight uh, on your shoulder? Like, do I owe them something? Because I struggle to, because I know that the reason I'm writing it is to honor them. That's the word you just used too. Mm -hmm. But how do you get that little devil off your shoulder that says, you know, you owe them. I hope you're doing it right. You better honor her. How do you dive into the fiction and get that little voice off your shoulder? Great question. Absolutely. And especially because we're writing fiction, you know, we're not writing yeah. their biography. Yeah. And so we have, we right. do have to, give we have to imagine that. their emotions and their, exactly. yeah. Yeah. And there, there's truth to that, even if it's not necessarily that we were there and we are writing exactly how something happened, we're, we're getting at the emotional truths. And yeah. this has been, this has been unique for me. I will be honest because a lot of the women I've written about, have been dead for 300 years. And so yeah. there were not people still alive yes. who were present yes. in the scene. You know, Benedict Arnold, when I wrote The Trader's Wife, 
his relatives will find me on Facebook and they'll send me messages and say, oh, we always knew Peggy was involved and we always knew she was the preparation. <laughs> but that, there's a remove of, of centuries yes, Yeah. So, literally, I was on the phone this morning. Marjorie Merriweather Pope's fourth husband, Herb May, it is this dramatic end to the marriage. I don't want to give anything away, but it, it's just something that you don't see coming and it's shocking. It was shocking to her and it was shocking to society. And his name was Herb May. And I was on the phone this morning with Herb May, who is Herb May, her ex-husband's grandson. And oh so goodness. I have never had anything like this happen with my fiction books before mm. because I've written about women who were dead, long dead. And so this is that little added element of pressure, wanting yep. to get it right, wanting to give the reader a satisfying story giving myself that permission that you said that this is a work of fiction. And, you know, there are the two tracks of the train. There's the the train track, there's the truth and the history, and there's my story. And that sometimes it's pretty close to parallel. And other times the story takes you in different directions. And so it was a real balancing act. Yep. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it was a challenge. Wow. Um, these ladies I've learned so much from about research and, you know, historical fiction. And I, uh, my book coming out in March, I did my first sort of real deep dive into two real women, Edith and Cornelia Vanderbilt. And I totally understand because, um, you know, they haven't been gone that terribly, terribly long. And so you do feel sort of this pressure to get it right. And like, there's going to be someone alive. that's like, well, that's not how this happened, but you know, you sort of do your very dead level best to get the real story. But you know, at the end of the day, you are, yes. you're, you're making these people up in a lot of ways. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But I, um, you know, in, in doing like a real deep dive and doing research about these women, there were so many things that like really surprised me about them. So was there anything um, that stands out to you that really surprised you when you kind of started digging into this research about Marjorie? Oh my goodness. There were so many things. <laughs> I, when I talk about her, I just have to talk in bullet points because there's so much there. I've got like the 10 fast facts about Marjorie Merriweather Post. But for instance, she started with her father coming from nothing in their Midwest barn in Michigan, gluing the labels on his homemade cereal company because he had been a patient of Dr. Kellogg's sand, the sanitarium. And he had been cured and he had gone to Dr. Kellogg after and said, Hey, you feed this stuff called granola cereal to your patients at the sand. I think there's really a market here. I think we should bring it, mass market it to the American consumer. And Dr. Kellogg basically laughed him off the campus and said, you know, <laughs> I serve this to my patients, but no American marketplace is ever going to want cereal, this thing called cereal. So anyway, <laughs> CW Post, Marjorie's father, takes it upon himself to make it available to the public and make it affordable to those who can't go to Dr. Kellogg's sanitarium. And Marjorie is his little protege. And they just started the two there. They had this incredible relationship. And so, but she was a daughter and this was the late 1800s, early 1900s, and there was no son. And so CW Post maybe would have left his empire to his son, could not do it, even though he was so ahead of his time. It was always known that her husband, at least in the early days, would likely be his heir, even though he wanted it to be Marjorie, and even though she had the smarts and the capability to do it. But so she ruled and led this this growing empire, but from behind the scenes. And she found creative ways to be in charge. And so one moment that really like jumped out at me that I loved, she's on her yacht, 
with her second husband, E.F. Hutton. Um, by the way, she and her husband, E.F. Hutton, were considered possibly the inspiration for Jay uh, Gatsby and Daisy because they were hanging out <gasps> in that crowd. Oh, they're hanging out on this yacht that is larger than the British royal family's yacht. It was the largest privately owned yacht in the in the world. This that was her that she built with her own money. And she is talking about this idea of if they could only have frozen foods on the boat to keep the food. She didn't like the food that was available on the ship. And her mm. husband, who was the business genius, who was the one running the company for her, even though she was, you know, in charge behind the scenes. Um, he was saying, you know, no one likes this concept of frozen food. No woman is ever going to want to have to have a refrigerator in her home. No grocery store is ever going to want to deal with the trouble of refrigerating and freezing food. And she was saying, I'm telling you, I'm thinking about the woman here. I'm thinking about the mother, the tired housewife who wants to be able to feed her family affordable, healthy meals, make it easy, save her hours every day. Um, and she had to just go against the boys. She had to go against the boys and finally convince awesome. them. And she broke open the entire American way of life and made millions in the process for herself. Um, but I just thought this is a woman who fundamentally changed my day, every person wow. in the day. And, and yet we don't know her name for that. We don't necessarily know as much about her as we should. And so there were moments like that um, routinely that I came across with the research of just, oh, you were there for that. You did that. You knew that person. You did that. And just... Wow. Like, wow, this was a woman who was shaping history. And she, probably nowadays she would have been president, but in her yeah. life, she, wow. she dealing with society. But that's so incredible and inspiring. Um, you know, we were talking to Alifair earlier about how, you know, her plots are very intricate. And she was talking about, you know, how she weaves together the different storylines and kind of brings it all together. It sounds in a lot of ways like you were doing the same thing, but with this real life story, there was just so much to tell as you were saying, you know, you could have written several books about this woman. How did you actually go about both writing about this real person and covering these long periods of time in a way that that fit into one narrative arc? Like, did, I mean, did you yeah. did you have a super detailed outline? Did you like can you just kind of tell us a little bit about the nuts and bolts of how this story got put together? Please. A lot, a lot, a lot of talking and a lot of crying. Yeah, we've been there. We've been there. Wow. It's yeah. taken me a yeah. long time. Um, I, I would, I loved how she uh, made the analogy of you're bringing all the boxes into the house. And then once you've done that for yourself, you can begin to rearrange. I see that a lot too. That was a really apt um, way of putting it. I sort of see it as I'm going through all the historical records and the source material that is there. And I need to wrangle and wrestle with that and get that down. And that, that is the bones of the story. I need to get that on the page so that I myself can make sense of that. And then once the bones are down, that is where the imagination and the process of actually creating the fiction takes over and allows me to then begin to put on the flesh over the top. And so because I have this woman's life and it's very well documented, that really is my beginning, middle and end. You know, this is not a suspense um, thriller that's going to reveal some plot twist. The history really gave me my bones. So then it's really just wrangling it and making it a story that is compelling and doesn't just read like hundreds of pages of info dumping, which was a real challenge. And um, it was 
I'm somebody who really, I give myself permission to write in many drafts because I really, I need that process of just honing and fine tuning over and over again. And yeah, the challenge with this is that she lived a long life. She lived into her eighties and I don't think Marjorie Merriweather Post had a single hour of a single day where she was not ridiculously purposeful and efficient. You know, she was always just busy. And so that was inspiring, but completely overwhelming. And so you have to give yourself permission. Like, you know, she built Mar-a-Lago. She wanted to leave that as the Winter White House. She built a ton of fabulous homes. I'm like, how many scenes can I have here where she's building another fabulous home or collecting another piece of some royal person's jewelry? You know, I had to kind of pick and choose and tease out aspects of the story without, you know, just making it a thousand pages long because I don't think anyone wants that, including me. So uh, it was, it was years of editing. I love my editor. Um, It really, that's a wonderful marriage there. I feel like our relationship. And so she, she helped me with that a lot. And um, that's, that is one of the reasons why I'll say this is the hardest book I've ever written, but I'm also really proud of it because I just, there, there's the history that I was handed like manna you know, allowed me, I think gave me the best possible setup to tell the fiction and the story the way I wanted to tell it. I just love hard that. Yeah. To, you know, to let go of the things that mm-hmm. you have, you want to tell everything. You have all these great things and you're like, but this is so interesting, but like, it's not a part of the story. Yeah. And that's really hard. Right. Right. Like, am I going to prioritize the fact that she's hanging out with F. Scott Fitzgerald and Flo Sigfeld and Jackie Kennedy and, you know, Molotov and FDR and Teddy Roosevelt and Winston Churchill? It's like, how am I going to get all these lunch and dinner dates down and, you know, all these parties? And so, um, yeah, you have have to kind of nip and talk. What a challenge, but I'm so glad you took it on. I mean, it's just such a, just, I, I, I think it's such a service that we will all know her story now. She's someone we should know and you're giving her to us, not just as a historical figure, but as a historical figure who we can identify with and, and care about and, and feel engaged with and feel inspired by. I, I think that's such a, it's such a privilege of being a historical fiction writer, I think. And I, I think, I know it's a privilege that all of us, all of us write historical fiction yes. or at least occasionally do. I, I think it's something we all take so seriously. So that's uh, awesome that, that you've done this. Yeah. Um, switching tracks quickly before mm-hmm. we, um, before we uh, let you go. And then we're actually going to have one more question for you at the end. Mm-hmm. But I also wanted to ask about your memoir. Um, you know, we mentioned earlier in the show that uh, for our friends in fiction reading prompt this month, we're encouraging people to read a memoir or a nonfiction book. And I really want our viewers out there to consider your memoir um, because it, it was um, such a beautiful one. And I think such a, I, I, I can't imagine the challenge of having gone through that, but then having put it to words in a way that did something for the rest of the world and, and, mm-hmm. and led us into your personal story. So can I just ask you quickly to tell us a little bit about, um, about your beautiful memoir and, Thank and you. what we can expect from it? Thank you. Yes. So I wrote Beauty in the Broken Places when my husband and I were expecting our first child and we were taking this flight uh, towards our baby moon, it's going to be our last trip together. My husband, who was 30 at the time and in perfect health, and I was also 30, 
And he's a doctor. He was a lifelong athlete. He was not a smoker, not a big drinker. He just turned to me in the middle of our flight. And he said, does my eye look weird? And I looked into his eye and the answer was, yes, your eye looks very weird. The black of his pupil, he has green eyes, but the black was taking up the entire eye that people had dilated. And it was just what was so weird to me was the asymmetry of it. And so me being a hypochondriac threw out the worst possible thing. And I was just like, are you having a stroke? And Dave being the doctor who's worked in the emergency room in Chicago and is not flappable, um, I expected him to just brush it off. Like he did everything when I would be you know, nervous about medical things and just say, you know, you're being ridiculous. And he was like, I think I might be. And two minutes later, he closed his eyes and he lost consciousness and he went into a coma while we were 35,000 feet in the air. Okay. And it took us a while because we were flying west, northwest. But eventually when he was clearly not going to wake up on this airplane, we had to make an emergency medical evacuation. So we landed in Fargo, North Dakota. And my husband was rushed into the nearest ER. And I was told after several hours of tests that my healthy, you know, beautiful young husband, the father of the child that we were mm-hmm. about to have together, had had an incredibly rare, a likely fatal, incredibly unlikely stroke. And that I should get his parents out to Fargo immediately to say goodbye. Oh my, oh and, my gosh. I had uh, chills everywhere. Me too. Well, so miraculously, he woke up several days later. But when he woke up, he was wiped clean. He was in a complete state of amnesia. And there was a totally new version of Dave that woke up. And I was just, while I was in the Fargo ICU that first night, wondering if he was going to make it through the night or not, I connected with Lee Woodruff, who is another writer that we all know and love. And she had written about her husband, Bob Woodruff's experience going over an IED in Iraq and his experience with brain injury and their excruciating process of healing and recovering as a family. And she just, she said some very insightful things, having sat in the room where I was sitting, you know, in her own experience but she just said right you need to keep writing you need to write your way through this writing will save you and I remember that first night not knowing whether or not Dave would wake up I just took out my laptop and I just started a letter and I wrote dear Dave and I just explained to him what was going on because I was sitting there alone in this Fargo ICU with the baby going crazy in my stomach because of all the adrenaline and cortisol. And I couldn't talk to my husband and I didn't have anyone else there. And so I just started writing as if I could talk to Dave. And I thought, wouldn't it be so amazing if, if someday, you know, he can read this or our, our daughter can read this if he doesn't survive. And so what happened was we went through this year of wow. beautiful, brutal, painful rehabilitation for Dave as a family, as a marriage with our new daughter entering the scene just a few months later. And I wrote Dave a letter every day for a year to Oh my goodness. Sort of for him, but also sort of for me. It was my way of processing and and Dave couldn't remember anything for the longest time. And so I just didn't count on myself to be able to remember anything either. And and people who had been through brain injury said, you know, you're not going to feel progress. You're not going to see progress. You know, with some, you know, he can't swallow, he can't drink, he can't go to the bathroom. Like these are things where you're not going to see them change. 
But six months from now, if you are writing through the process, you will be able to go back and see truly how far you have come. And so writing was sort of an incredibly valuable thing for all of us. And after Dave was doing a lot better and our daughter was healthy and we were sort of making it through the woods, we wrote a piece together for the New York Times about our experience for stroke awareness. And the response from that was so surprising to me and so overwhelming and just hearing from people who had walked similar roads to that which we were walking my editor came to me very, very delicately and very sensitively and just broached the topic of writing about it in a longer form. And I really didn't like the idea at first because writing, I write fiction. Writing is my happy place. Writing is where I go and I love it. And I didn't realize that this, you know, 365 page document I have on my computer that was started with Dear Dave and the Fargo ICU was also writing. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't realized, I hadn't thought yeah. of it that way. So it took me some time, but eventually I just thought, you know, one of the ways I survived our year together was reading memoir and having that connection with other people who had been through and not only been through, but survived. And so I just thought that was ultimately what kind of tipped the scale for me. I was like, if this book can be useful to even one person, one white who's coming home from those long days in the ICU alone, missing her husband and needing to just find solace in someone else's words, if I can give that to one person, then it will be worth it. And it was incredibly also just cathartic for me because it was like, this is the story I've been carrying for a year. Now I'm going to share it and everyone else can see it and know it and can carry it with me. And it's, it's just been so amazing because, you know, your fiction, people connect and they tell you about their experiences with your fiction, but it's totally different when you're writing about your own life and you're writing nonfiction and then people are just connecting with you and opening up about their own experiences. It's been really just mind blowing as a writer. And, you know, it's, it's hard. It was hard. It's hard to talk about it. It was hard to, to write it. Live through. Yeah. 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 Um, but it's something we'll always have as a family. And it's something that I'm still just, you know, so profoundly grateful to connect with readers over. And how so, old yeah. is your daughter? How, how so long has it been? Six. My daughter is six. Okay. And, and Dave made a really miraculous recovery. It was such a rare stroke that there was no case literature on how to rehabilitate oh a patient of profile with a stroke. And so the beauty of that was that, we were able to just keep moving the goalpost because there was no one to tell us, this is what you can expect. Yeah. You know, at first it was yeah. like, can he survive? And then it was like, can he wake up? And then it will be, will he ever be able to swallow food again? And then will he ever be able to talk again? And then could he maybe, you know, someday walk and do stairs and maybe someday he could drive. And we just kept reaching for the next impossible thing. And we just kept fighting and believing and, and winning, you know, the getting to that moment, he worked so hard and we just, we had the support of our amazing family and friends. Um, and so, so we have three girls now we had Lily and then we were able to have two more. And so it's, it's a part of our life story. Um, but it's not the end of his life story. It's not the end. You, you were such an inspiration. I mean, you know, we talk so much on here about the impacts the books can have, but you've chosen to make impacts in such beautiful ways. I mean, with your historical fiction, but then with telling your, 
your incredible true story too. So thank you. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for giving us the reminder tonight of the fact that that's what books can do and and that, and that books are there to touch people and to connect people and unite people in their journey. So thank you for being a part of that. Um, We are running a little bit long tonight, Allison, um, but we are going to skip our after show. So if you would not mind sticking around for just one more minute, we have a couple closing announcements. Then we have one more question for you. Do you have just two more minutes to stick around with us? Yes. Fantastic. Okay. Very quickly. Um, Patty, do you want to dive into our announcements? Yeah, just a quick, I'm just sitting here just overwhelmed. I know I'm so overwhelmed too. I'm so, I'm just, uh, you can't help when you hear a story like that, Allison, of thinking, what if it was my story, right? How would I react? And, and writing that daily letter, I keep thinking, I wish I'd done that when the kids were young, right? You think Mm -hmm. you're never going to forget. You think Mm -hmm. you're not going to forget and you do. I also have to say um, how much, Allison, I think um, we all needed to hear that tonight. You know, we're worried about Mary Kay and we're worried about Mary Kay's daughter, like we were talking about earlier. And um, it's it's nice to hear these stories of hope and life and, you know, yeah. bright, beautiful things on the other side. So I, I think I think all of us in the community who, who care so much about Mary Kay, I think needed yes. to hear that tonight, too. We are sending her all of the light and love we can. We are. We are. Thank you. Okay, so just a quick reminder of our Writer's Block podcasts. You know how much I love them. We will always post links under announcements each time a new one goes out. A new episode launches each Friday. On the last episode, Ron and Nancy Johnson talked with Lily Blackburn about diverse debuts. And this week, Ron and Mary Kay talked with Linda Keetron and the Litchfield Luncheon author, she heads up the Lynch Litchfield. Oh my gosh, that's such a tongue tire. She heads up the Litchfield Luncheon series. And they talked about people who are author allies like Linda. So don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're hitting subscription buttons, add the newsletter and our YouTube so you never miss anything. Because there's so much, you don't want to miss any of it. And you can also find selected back episodes on this streaming platform called Loco Plus, which also includes lots of brand new content from other independent creators. And if you are not hanging out with us yet in our Friends in Fiction official book club, you are missing out. This group, which is separate from our main group and run by our friends Lisa Harrison and Brenda Gardner, is now more than 10,000 members strong. So join them on February 4th for Happy Hour with Ron Block and awesome author Nancy Johnson. I can't wait for that. That's going to be awesome. I know. And make sure to join us also next week for our next episode of Friends in Fiction. Next Wednesday, right here at seven, where we will welcome Marie Benedict and Fiona Davis, who we know you all love. Um, Mm -hmm. And Brenda Janowitz will be joining us on the after show. So it's going to be another great jam-packed episode. It's going to be lots of fun. And then on February 9th, we are hosting Jane Allen. So we're really looking forward to that too. If you're ever wondering about our schedule, it's always on the Friends in Fiction website and on the header graphic on our Facebook page. All right, Miss Allison. Yes. One question we always love to ask, mm-hmm. and I, I always leave the show thinking, I'm so glad we asked that, yeah. which is what were the values around reading and writing when you were growing up with your parents? Oh, my goodness. So I was the third of four children. And so I feel like I I know for a fact I was just left alone a lot and <laughs> I was left to my own devices. And so 
one of the, I had two favorite places to sort of go and wander. And one was into a book. Always. There were always books. It was always something that we were encouraged, you know, going to the library and our house was jammed. You know, we always got read to every night. That was sort of sacrosanct in our house. And then the other place where I would go to and, and sort of become consumed was my own head and these stories. And I, I just have all these memories. When I think about afternoons as a child after school, my memories are just walking around the backyard completely lost in these fictional worlds that I was creating. And then that turned into just writing these stories and just sort of making things up always. Still to this day, I can't go to sleep without being lost in my head in a story. That's just sort of where I go when I have, when I have the chance. Um, and so I would say they were, they were foundational. I, I read something recently where there was this point where it was like everything you can do as a parent, whether it's the ballet class or the Chinese lessons or the karate or the cooking class or the swimming class, none of it matters as much as reading to your children. And yes. I just, when I heard that, I thought, thank you, mom and dad, because yeah. I think they felt that and passed that along. And now I feel that as a mother too. So stories were seminal history in particular, we're a huge family of history dorks. It was always okay to talk and geek out about history at the table. We loved great historical stories. Uh, and so they, they were just sort of one of the central pillars of our home. And I hope, I hope I can recreate that with my own children. Allison, it sounds like you are. It has been such a pleasure getting to know you tonight. We're sorry we kept you a little bit later um, than okay. intended, but we so appreciate the time. Before you go, can you just tell our viewers where they can find you? Yes. So I'm everywhere. <laughs> Social media. So um, <laughs> just my name, Allison Pataki, Allison with two L's, uh, com is my website. And then Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And um, yeah, I, I look forward to hearing from y'all. Allison, it was so nice to chat with you. We are so excited for your new book that's coming out in just two weeks, which sounds so great. And we also hope that um, that our viewers will pick up your memoir as for that uh, reading prompt in February. So thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself with us tonight. And good luck with everything. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Allison. Thank you. Thanks, Allison. All right, everybody out there, don't forget that you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We're live there every week, just like we are on Facebook. And if you subscribe, you will not miss a thing. Plus, you'll have access to special short clips. Be sure to come back next week, same time, same place, as we welcome Marie Benedict, Fiona Davis, and Brenda Janowitz. See you next week. Good night, y'all. Good night. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.